Now, our last speaker of the afternoon is Professor Kieran Brady, who's a member of the Royal Irish Academy and a fellow of Trinity College, Dublin. He's Professor of Early Modern History and Historiography in Trinity. Early on enough in his career, he wrote a book on Shane O'Neill, which is still in print. It's been re uh, reissued several times. And although he has had forays into the 19th century historiography, uh, his heart, I think, is in the early modern period. And he's going to talk to us today about Hugh O'Neill and the Earl of Essex. So I'll hand you over now to Professor Kieran Brady. Thanks, Bernadette. Um, I'll just close this down, if I may. Uh, between a rock and a hard place, that translates as, I'm here to speak on the effect of the Viceroyalty of the Earl of Essex on the rebellion of the Earl of Tyrone, and the two leading experts on each side of this subject have refused to help me out. In regard to the Earl of Essex, Paul Hammer, the widely acknowledged authority on the career of the Earl of Essex, has chosen to end his vastly erudite study of polarization of politics in Elizabethan England in 1598 a year before Essex's assumption of viceregal office. While his numerous articles, scholarly articles have given some indication of the direction of his thought, we yet await his study of Essex in Ireland. Similarly, Hiram Morgan, the acknowledged living authority on Tyrone's rebellion, ended that path-breaking monograph, when, about 1597, would you say, Hiram? 1598, six, six even, I was being kind, I mean 1596, and despite several subsequent publications to which I'll refer to at the end, from which I've derived great profit, we still eagerly await his assessment of the episode of Essex in Ireland. In the meantime, this poor soul and expert neither on Essex nor on the second Earl of Tyrone can hope only to offer some suggestions on that episode, informed merely by my understanding of the broader features of Tudor vice royalties in Ireland and some studies in the politics and culture of 16th century Ulster in general uh, and the earlier O'Neills in particular. On this meagre basis, it's perhaps best to begin with a summary of the central features of Essex's Viceroyalty in Ireland, features which will be recalled, I think, by those who still remember the accounts in the standard school textbooks. The, there are, conventionally, three phases to this story. Uh, Essex, supplied with the greatest martial force ever gifted by Elizabeth to an Irish Viceroy, including 16,000 foot, 1300 horse, was appointed Lord Lieutenant, a title granted to only two of his 40 or so Tudor predecessors in December 1598 and formally received the seals of office in Dublin on the 15th of April 1599. Having boasted notoriously and frequently that his single and only ambition was to destroy Tyrone, Essex's purported strategy was to be an all-out war against the arch-rebel by reviving the pincer movement strategy, first devised by Sir Henry Sidney back in 1566 against Shane O'Neill. Under this campaign plan, the transparency of which, by the way, Donald Trump would have deplored, a major expeditionary force would be deployed at the Derry, the mouth of the Loch Foyle. This done, a powerful army would march northwards and westwards from the Pale, and O'Neill, and together they would squeeze O'Neill on either side of the Sperrins, forcing him up the mountain range, depriving him of supplies and supporters, and eventually forcing his surrender. Now, this original Sydney strategy was wrecked 
Uh, it was opposed by inadequate forces and by the unfortunate accident of a gunpowder explosion at the Derry in 1566. But now, under Lord Lieutenant Essex, all of this would be rectified. Now that, according to the traditional story, was the plan. But almost immediately on Essex's arrival, this hugely complicated logistical project was abandoned. And instead, impulsively, on the 9th of May, 1599, Essex embarked on a southern journey, which took him through Leinster, North Munster, back again to Leinster again. During this two-month detour, almost nothing apparently was achieved. No major battles, no victories, no dispossessions. Instead, this massive army was depleted by desertion and Essex's enormous dispersion of garrisons. This, as the textbooks would have it, phase one, was his first grievous folly. The second was soon to follow. With his dangerously depleted forces, Essex eventually determined, against the advice of the Irish Council, to move northward to confront O'Neill. At last, the Great War was to begin. But on the merest pre pretext, an offer of O'Neill to exchange prisoners, a process was immediately begun by which it was agreed that Essex should meet in person with the arch-rebel and in private to discuss terms. Essex did so, meeting with Tyrone himself out of earshot to either side and agreed to suspend hostilities. This, the textbooks say, is second egregious blunder. The third came quickly. Having made his secret agreement with Tyrone, Essex then abandoned his post and against the express instructions of Elizabeth hastened away to court, presenting himself without permission before Her Majesty, they say she was still in a state of undress, on the 28th of September 1599, urging her to grant him full authority to negotiate a final settlement with Tyrone. As you can imagine, Elizabeth refused. Had Essex erected, arrested and appointed his arch-rival for the Viceroyalty, the man who really wanted it back in 1599, Lord Mountjoy, in his place, with express instructions to resume the war. End of story. Now, confronted with this set of gross errors and misjudgments, historians have conventionally had resort to simple psychological explanation. For Richard Bagwell and the eminently sensible Cyril Falls, Essex was a fool. A young man with more courage than sense, more ambition than intelligence. It's not easy for the modern mind, wrote Falls, to measure the enormity of the Lord Lieutenant's folly. And so he didn't even bother to try. Others were more imaginative, though. Thus, for Lytton Strachey in his Elizabeth and Essex, the strange air engulfed him. The strange land, charming, savage, mythical, lured him on with indulgent ease. He moved triumphant through a new, peculiar universe of the unimagined and the unreal. Who or what were these people with their mantles and their nakedness? All was vague, contradictory, unaccountable, and the Lord Lieutenant, advancing farther and farther into the green wilderness, began, like so many others before and after him, to catch the surrounding infection, to lose the solid sense of things, and to grow confused over what was fancy and what was fact. 
people made good money writing this sort of thing in the 1920s. Would you really regret it? Now, bad enough as that is, some more recent investigations have been even less helpful. Thus, Chris Butler and Willie Maley, in an entertaining essay characterized by an absence of original research balanced by exuberant speculation, have identified an Essex project among the literary avant-garde, led, of course, by Spencer, but aided and abetted, bet you didn't know this, by Shakespeare, urging upon the Earl all kinds of forceful, violent, and oppressive strategies without addressing the obvious question as to why Essex himself seemed precisely to do the opposite. And this tendency toward fiction inherent in that essay has been brought to fulfillment by the latest piece of work on Essex in Ireland, which I've come across, an account of his journey south, which seems innocently, but almost entirely, to rely for its evidence on Emily Lawless's charming and charmingly deceptive novel of 1890, entitled With Essex in Ireland. Now, in contrast to all of this, perhaps the one scholar so far to offer a persuasive and sensible account of Essex's conduct in Ireland was L.W. Henry. Uh, in a series of articles published in the late 1950s, Henry was attempting something of a defence, rehabilitation of the unfortunate Earl. As a military commander, he was by no means intemperate or impulsive. Instead, in his earlier campaigns on the continent, he showed himself to be a competent and resourceful strategist, if also, by the way, a rather unlucky one. Um, his campaign strategy for Ireland, which had at its core the expedition to Loch Foy, which Hiram has noted earlier, uh, was both sensible in principle and in its logical and tactical details had been worked through meticulously long in advance. What wrecked his schemes was not his own personal incompetence, but the chronic inefficiency and amateurishness of the Elizabethan administrative system, exacerbated by the malicious obstructiveness of his enemies at court. Henry's research was impressive, using sources completely uh, untouched by most of his predecessors. But his argument was nonetheless strained. Uh, by the late 1590s, Essex was fully apprised of the cumbersome and unwieldy nature of the administrative system within which he had been required to work for almost a decade. And he must surely have taken that into his calculations, or else be doomed, as Bagwell and Falls would have it, fool. Fool or no, he was all too aware of the threats posed to him by his courtly rivals. So why expose himself to such dangers by adopting such an elaborate and complex strategy as the centerpiece of his governorship? There are other reasons to doubt. When the delays and obstructions duly arose, Essex responded with remarkable equability and stoicism, without the expressions of furious frustration such as his predecessors, Sussex, Sydney, and Paris, had given vent to on similar occasions. He mildly accepted the Irish Council's advice that nothing could be done in Ulster till all the preparations had been made, while at other times he was wholly to ignore the advice of that same council. And he seems largely to have used the delays in the provision of ships for the Loch Foyle expedition as an excuse and an explanation for his more important decision to turn south. Now, on reflection, moreover, that journey south seems to have had more than an air of faute de mieux about it. It was preceded by a propaganda campaign through the medium of a printed proclamation which was distributed in large numbers throughout the areas Essex was intending to travel. Sadly, 
No copies seem to have survived. They're obviously gobbled up. But from the Earl's own comments, it appears that they have at once demanded the submission of all those in arms, together with a promise that those who did so would be pardoned and returned to grace and favour in a kind of instant and general surrender and regret ceremony. Similarly, the cities and major towns through which Essex was to pass and to rest, and they are Kilkenny, Clonmel, Waterford and Limerick, appear to have been given advance notice that the Earl would be happy to entertain elaborate ceremonies of reception and orations, which, to the condescending amusement of Essex's companion, Sir John Harrington, the burghers duly performed. Now, it seems to me that the suggestion that there was something preconsidered about Essex's summer expedition southward, which was more of a progress than a campaign, requires a little further attention to the details of that tour. And it's useful to begin with a reflection on what he did not do. He did not, for instance, head for Athlone, which was a typical destination of his predecessors. Nor did he take the coast road south, the safe one, as was hardly less common. And he did not, as Ormond suggested he might do, march directly to Kilkenny. Instead, he began in North Kildare, at Nace, thence to Kilcullen, Asai, and Woodbrook. In short, he began in Geraldine country, and his object was to confront, defeat, or to secure the submission of that unruly subject to whom Hiram has already made reference, James Fitzpiers Fitzgerald, the current leader of the so-called bastard Geraldines. In the event, he secured the latter submission. As Essex appeared before the castle of Athai, which Fitzpiers had occupied, Fitzpiers immediately submitted, surrendered the castle and the adjacent castle at Woodbrook, was received to mercy and pardoned. A first strike for the conquering viceroy. Or so it appeared. Now, largely ignored or dismissed as a tribe of freebooters by historians such as Bagwell, the complex nature of the relations between these apparently illegitimate and largely landless branches of the House of Kildare, with their neighbours, and with a double administration, has now been revealed in a fascinating and valuable study by my fellow speaker, Ruth Canning. Only recently, out in rebellion, Fitzpiers had hitherto been acknowledged as a loyal supporter of the Crown, and had even on occasion served as Sheriff of Kildare. The cause of his rebellion, he claimed, had been the enmity toward him of the Earl of Ormond, who had used his position as Lord Justice in the previous year to attack him, and who had falsely imprisoned Fitzpiers's friend and close ally, Captain Thomas Lee. This background, uncovered by Ruth, throws some interesting light on Essex's conduct in Kildare. It was surely no coincidence that one of the first actions taken by Essex on his arrival in Dublin was to order the release of Lee from Dublin Castle, and Lee was to join with Essex on his tour in Kildare. After such a clear signal of the Viceroy's intentions, Fitzpiers's choice was clear, and a dangerous situation thus resolved. The appearance before a thigh and its ceremonial surrender suggest that, as in the case of the progresses through the towns and cities that were now to occur, there was a distinct element of theatre in Essex's conduct, an indication that the political sy the symbolism of his progress was, if anything, more important than its military or strategic dimensions. Now, Essex's reconciliation of Fitzpiers may be seen, for those inclined to do so, as part of a deliberate effort on his part to challenge or even antagonise 
the overmighty Earl of Ormond. Uh, but the matter is more complex. Just prior to the token siege of Athai, Ethics had had his first formal meeting with Ormond. Ormond had brought with him his own version of the rebellious Geraldines, that is to say, um, Edmund Butler, the second Viscount Mountgarrett, and Thomas Butler, Lord Kerr. Both men had been openly in rebellion for more than a year, and each had committed several outrages. And unlike Fitzpiers, both had openly proclaimed religion as the cause of their revolt. But, as in the case of Fitzpiers, after a due and humble submission, Essex accepted their surrender and moved on to possess their castles. Essex then proceeded to Kilkenny, where in the company of Ormond he was greeted with the first of the lavish civic ceremonies of his progress, and from thence to the other major butler town of Clonmel. At Kerr, despite the pleadings of the uh, reconciled and the newly reconciled baron, the garrison proved resistant, but only brief briefly, a few skirmishes by night giving Essex the first of the very few opportunities he had to reveal the other part of his mission, his determination to meet disobedience with force. Thus, the central message of the progress was being reiterated. The Viceroy was making it plain that he would treat all the Queen's subjects, mighty and otherwise, who submitted to him with equal clemency, and those who rejected it with force. There was, moreover, I think, a further element in Essex's concern to deal with Fitzpiers and the Geraldines first. Now, it is related to his own complex relationship with the House of Kildare itself. In the early 1590s, a long-brewing animosity between him and Henry, the 12th Earl of Kildare, burst out scandalously in an affray in the Queen's privy chamber. They began beating the crap out of each other in the Queen's presence. Now, this animosity may have had its roots, as Paul Hammer suggests, in the deep hatred of Essex held by Kildare's wife and countess, Frances Howard. And I think it also has more direct causes. Essex's aunt, Frances no Catherine Knowles, was the widow of Gerald, Lord Offaly, the eldest son of the, and heir of the 11th Earl of Kildare, who had died before his father in 1580. On the death of the Earl, it appeared that in his will, he had altered the will, the terms of the will of the marriage jointure with Catherine. This was hotly disputed throughout the 1580s and 90s um, between Kildare and the Knowles family, and they remained engaged in a bitter legal dispute throughout Henry Kildare's life. On Henry's death, without heirs, male in 1598, the times are useful here, title passed to the 11th Earl's third and only remaining son, William. For long alienated from his brother, William was anxious to secure a resolution of the dispute and travelled to court early in 1599 uh, to effect this. There he seems to have achieved a reconciliation with Essex, for it was agreed that as Viceroy, Essex would arbitrate in the dispute, and the new Earl of Kildare, joining Essex's fleet to accompany him to Dublin, believed that all was well. And then disaster struck. In the midst of a sudden storm, Kildare and all his party were lost at sea. With the 11th Earl's progeny now extinct, title passed to the heir of the Earl's brother, Sir Edward Fitzgerald, also now dead, to his eldest son, Gerald, who was himself already a close associate of Essex. 
uh, as his father, Sir Edward, had been a staunch ally of Essex's patron, the Earl of Leicester. But as a collateral, he'd had no involvement at all in the dispute over the 11th Earl's will, and little reason now to engage. Coincidentally, perhaps not, the central properties at stake in that long-standing legal dispute concern the land surrounding the castles of, guess what, Asai and Woodstock. At any rate, the putative heir was immediately received into Essex's favour. He was knighted by the, left, uh, by the Lord Lieutenant in June 99 and was to accompany Essex on all his remaining expeditions around Ireland. Now, I've pursued this relatively marginal detail in regard to the Kildares because it seems to me to illustrate a central impulse of Essex's progress, which was to, to stabilise and reinforce the status of the Irish nobility. Thus, Ormond and Kildare were not to be set at, e at ears against each other, as had been the practice of so many previous viceroys, Sussex, Sidney and Fitzwilliam. They were instead to be reconciled through arbitration where possible, through competitive bargaining if required, and only, if necessary, through force. It is this intention that characterises Essex's dealings with the Irish nobility throughout the remainder of that southern tour. Following the capture of Care, Essex then turned northwestward toward Desmond country to the city of Limerick, where amidst the now familiar civic ceremonies, he was greeted by the Earl of Thoman and the son and heir of the Earl of Clan Rickard, Lord Dunkellan. Having granted authority to both to take charge of suppressing the rebels in Thomond and Clan Rickard respectively, Essex turned himself to confront the rebellious Desmonds, investing the Desmond castles at Haskeaton and Adair. Now, it's uncertain whether his aim was to confront the forces of the Sugon heir in battle or to accept their submission. From what has happened so far, I think it's probable that Essex had kept both options open. But in the event, he could avail of neither, as the rebels, while shadowing his army all the way across Limerick, simply refused to make contact. Failure to address the Desmonds was a disappointment, but hardly a surprising or a serious one. The most irreconcilable of the Irish nobility, any possibility of their being brought to terms was complicated immensely by the plantation now developing on their lands. They could be dealt with later. So Essex thus moved again southward from leaving Limerick and entering North Cork at Fermoy. Again, more ceremonies where he was met by the local magnates, Lords Barry and Roach, and made arrangements for the containment of the Desmond rebels in the region. Thence he moved on to Lismore, further ceremonies, thence to Waterford where he spent several days and moved again in Escorty, Ferns where he was loyally received, then to Arklow and Wicklow and by the coast road back to Dublin where he arrived on the 2nd of July. All in all, the tour had lasted for just under two months. That's the 9th of May to the 2nd of July. And though the lieutenant had covered an amazing amount of territory in this relatively short time with a heavy baggage train, he'd experienced very few military encounters, none of them with a partial exception of the surrender of care, uh, very conclusive. What had Essex been trying to do? One explanation is that he was simply biding his time, waiting for the forces required for the lock foil strategy to arrive. And this seems, after all the detail I've just supplied, less than convincing. 
Another is more plausible. That is, that investing castles, that in investing castles and stronghouses, receiving submissions and granting pardons, Essex was simply emulating the tactics deployed by the Earl of Ormond in his successful suppression of the Desmond Rebellion in the early 1580s. This is true insofar as it goes. But Ormond's campaigns were conducted without any of the ceremonies that characterized Essex's progress, and nor did they reveal a particular focus of treating with the senior nobility. Ormond was careful to prosecute or receive to mercy any rebel groups that came his way. Now, it is arguable, and I would accept the argument, that Essex's cultivation of the Irish nobility was consonant with the aristocratic revival or reaction which English historians have seen to be central to his conduct of politics at the Elizabethan court. In this light, his encouragement of ceremony and his lavish conferral of knighthoods along, uh, along the way of his Irish tour is consistent with what Janet Dickinson and others have seen as a deliberate attempt to propagate a culture of chivalry in the late Elizabethan court. But there is also one further, and I think more directly Irish political precedent for Essex's conduct, albeit merely a theoretical one, against which his tour might be best assessed. The strategic idea of gathering a massive army, which was to be employed not for war and conquest, but to range around the country, making submissions, taking submissions, especially from the nobility, depositing garrisons at key points, and making arrangements for the supply from local sources, and using this willingness to offer supply as a practical sign of loyalty, was not original to Essex. It was first suggested, in fact, as far back as the early 1570s in a series of memoranda drafted on behalf of Sir Henry Sidney by his close advisor and secretary, Edmund Tremaine. This strategy was then seen as the first stage of a major policy initiative, which, in a much reduced form, Sidney was to assay in his last viceroyalty in the 1570s and was known summarily as composition. That Essex's own strategic thinking was heavily influenced by the idea of composition is evidenced clearly in one of the most important documents pertaining to his viceroyalty. This is the curious text first published uh, from manuscript in the 1840s, from a manuscript in the Harleian uh, collection in the British Library in the 1840s, attributed to one John Dimmock and entitled misleadingly by the editor, A Treatise of Ireland. There are many curious features about this relatively short text. In the printed version, it takes up less than 50 very, very generously spaced pages. Not least the identity of the author. No one seems to know who John Dimmock was. Uh, neither his name nor anything like it appears in the contemporary accounts. And it would appear that he wrote nothing else. It may, of course, have been a pseudonym. I've traced an earlier John Dimmock who wrote tracts against the, the Lollards. Perhaps there are some references here that have now been lost. One possibility, but here I hesitate to wander into Willie Maley territory, is that it might have been the product of Essex's secretary, Henry Wooten, because Wooten, uh, who was later to pursue a very distinguished career, is, while a current nobody, given a singularly important place in one of the sections of the text. But more to the point... <coughs> The treatise is not a coherent treatise or essay. It is instead a compendium made up of several different sections not related to one another by some underlying argument. 
In its later sections, which account for the final third of the text, uh, it offers simply narratives of Essex's journeys in Ireland from May until September and a more detailed one from August to September, uh, interspersed by a special account of the defeat of Sir Conyers Clifford at the Battle of the Curlews, which, given the paucity of official reports on that event, is of a special value to historians. But the first two-thirds of the compendium are about something else. After a brief and general description of Ireland's geography and natural history and a short account of the character of the people, which I think is derived from Stanihurst in Hollandshed, the remainder of the sections function as a sort of gazetteer, detailing the political geographical division of the country on a county-by-county basis, its administrative structures, both civil and ecclesiastical. A review, and I quote, of such strengths and fastnesses of wood and bog as are in every province. But also three sections, one on, quote, the services of the Irishry due to Her Majesty, a second on the several exactions levied by the Irish lords upon their tenants and of what nature and qualities they be, and finally on the horse and foot as the Earl of Kildare had very lately plotted to be sessed and waged by the several captains and lords of the countries in the provinces. This was, in short, a tax assessment record. Looked at in the round, this so-called treatises emerges as a handbook for the Earl of Essex, not as a part of his defence at the time of his trial, because there's absolutely no indication of defensiveness in its journal sections, but as a compendium of material for a case as to how the lieutenant would be fully informed on the essential political structures and power relations of the island, and also with the major players within that system, and how he would propose to proceed in this process of converting submission secured into clear, stable, measurable, permanent agreements on the basis of existing taxation relationships already clearly enunciated. That Essex might have engaged uh, on an effort to revive under exceptionally favourable circumstances that is, the general convulsion of all the regional power structures in Ireland, the strategies of Sydney and Perrot should hardly be surprising. After all, the perennial alternatives of colonisation or the circling of the wagons around the pale were hardly available in the circumstances of the 1590s. And yet, the question arises as to how this eminently sophisticated and finely calculated strategy, based on decades of experience and reflection, should have been made even less progress under Essex than it had under Sydney and Perrot. For this, there can be no simple explanation. Uh, but only contingency. Uh, amidst his southern tour, there were hardly any occasions of challenge. Even Essex's ter- determination to present an inexcusable provocation to the Desmond rebels bore him no front fruit. All that possibly to the good. But two events, one far more serious than the other, with which Essex was in no way directly involved, presented more serious challenge. The first was the disaster of the rout of Sir Henry Harrington just outside Wicklow by the O'Burns at the end of May 1599, while Essex was still in Limerick. This was bad as it gave encouragement to rebels everywhere that despite the arrival of the great lieutenant and his massive army, the English administration was not invincible. But it wasn't unrecuperable. 
Essex's progress, which I've outlined, from Ennis Gorty through to Whitlow, did much to restore this, and his summary treatment of the, uh, the surrendered army, which included the arrest of Harrington, the execution of senior officers, and actually the decimation, Roman style, of the troops, made it clear that the hard man, the conciliatory man, meant business if things did not go his way. Altogether more serious, however, was the unexpected and disastrous defeat and death of Conyers Clifford at the Battle of the Curlew Mountains on the 5th of August, at the hands of A. Rua O'Donnell. Understated in the official accounts, but not as I've indicated in Dimock's text, the significance of this event can hardly be overstated. Clifford was a long-time friend and close ally of Essex, who had served with him at Rouen and Cadiz. But he was also, as Bernadette Cunningham, our chair, has ably demonstrated, a leading representative of the new English presence in North Connacht since the early 1570s, a leading member of a family that had been steadily extending its influence across the region in these 1580s and 1590s. The totality of his defeat, and the most especially the brutal manner of its celebration, um, O'Donnell sent Clifford's severed head to the besieged loyalist O'Connor Sligo, was a symbol of what might befall all the English and their collaborators. And this represented a shift of gravity in the war against the English in Ireland. Yet what was great for O'Donnell and bad for Essex was in reality not good news for Tyrone either. Exploiting his own version of the Battle of the Yellow Ford, O'Donnell moved to exploit his victory across North Connacht in a manner which conspicuously Tyrone had refrained from uh, in his address to the Pale after the Battle of the Yellow Ford in 1598. As he took O'Connor's Ligo, threatened all of Mayo, and seemed even on the brink of besieging Galway, O'Donnell's assertion of, the primacy in of his primacy in rebellion seemed likely e even as, by now, the promise of a Spanish intervention seemed about to be realized. Thus, being both equally, but for different reasons, discomfited by the success of the radicals in the West, the other parties, Essex and Tyrone, moved toward engagement. There's a distinct element of stagecraft about that meeting of Tyrone and Essex at Bella Clint on the 7th of September, 1599, occasioned by the offer of O'Neill to Sir William Warren, a dubious double agent if ever there was one, to conduct an exchange of prisoners. Tyrone's proposal to meet with Essex uh, without conditions, and indeed on terms set by the lieutenant, was ostensibly unexpected. Essex's eagerness to respond to the offer is an indication either of his childish folly, as the hard men historians would have it, or, and I think this is rather more persuasive, of his being informed in advance by Warren, of course, of what Tyrone was likely to say. There was, moreover, not one meeting, but three. After the notorious private exchange across the ford, there were almost immediately second meeting in which the advisers from both sides were participant, and finally there was on the next day a considerably longer third conference at which Tyrone was present, Essex appropriately absent, though represented by his closest associates, and especially as Dimmock goes out of his way to inform us by his wisest and closest advisor, Henry Wooden. Notoriously, the substance of these negotiations remains secret, and subsequent charges based on Tyrone's uh, putative demands were hotly denied, 
by Essex. But dispensing with all the charges and countercharges issuing an Essex trial, one fact is indisputable. That is Essex's decision to return immediately to court. That he chose to do so remains, of course, a perplexity. And Robert Cecil, shortly later, remarked uh, that had Essex restrained himself but a few weeks more, he'd have attained the license to depart, uh, which was to cost him so dear. Enemy Cecil's judgment is hardly to be relied on. Yet Essex's sense of urgency had deeper and firmer roots. In the immediate term after the disaster of the curlews, both he and Tyrone had, for very different reasons, good cause for attaining a settlement as rapidly as possible. For Tyrone, the motives were traditional and geopolitical. As an O'Neill, he needed to reassert the predominance of his dynasty over the province or else witness a re-emergence of the historical O'Donnell hegemony. Uh, which has now shifted, which seemed to shift inexorably toward West Ulster after the Battle of the Curlews. But for, the, for Essex, the stakes were hardly less high. Having secured the allegiance of a critical mass of the Irish nobility, Kildare, Ormond, Thomond, Clan Rickard, unprecedentedly, he now had the opportunity of bringing into the fold the major and currently dominant power in Ulster, the Earl of Tyrone. A figure, notwithstanding his ambivalent conduct, who still clung to the significance of the title he had earned. Securing O'Neill's submission and return to allegiance would provide the capstone to the aristocratic political edifice which Essex was anxiously trying to construct. After Tyrone, Desmond and O'Donnell might submit or might be destroyed, but the new structure could be made firm enough without them. The high stakes that were being played for by both sides and the intense urgency which the game had acquired are evidenced in two quite different attitudes struck by Tyrone in the weeks immediately following Essex's departure. In the first, communicated in his negotiations through Warren, Tyrone expressed the sincerity of his wish to be reconciled with the crown, but also that this could only be done to his assurance by the person of Essex, for whose return he looked daily. He stated also that his own safety and his own ability to honour the terms of the peace could only be guaranteed by a willingness to allow him to consult with his confederates win rebellion, something which Essex had been willing to permit. For Tyrone then, Essex was singularly settlement, central to any permanent settlement. Just a month later, however, when Essex's failure and his arrest had become known, Tyrone had changed his tune, and in a proclamation and set of articles edited and ably analysed by Hiram Morgan, he was asserting a far more irreconcilable tone. In these, Tyrone's assertion of the claims of religious liberty and, the, as, as, and of the essential precondition of the restoration of Catholicism as official religion, Tyrone was, as Hiram has persuasively argued, deploying a subtle combination of carrot and stick encouraging the alienated and the marginalized to come to his side uh, while presenting their social and political leaders with a challenge to their position. The challenge confronting the leadership of the Pale, however, was to be even greater in the face of the Irish nobility, of the senior Irish nobility. Thus was Tyrone, even as his demarche with Essex seemed on the point of crumbling, still asserting his claim to primacy within the elite of the Irish aristocracy. But in the short term, at any rate, Tyrone's assertion of an irreconcilable position scuppered, in Hiram's words, any chance of further negotiation. And Essex's grand projects, along with all the other efforts, at comp composition 
sank into obscurity.